not too far down the road from where I live, there was a notorious psychiatric facility, the East Bay Hospital. It housed all manner of people with mental illness and sometimes deplorable, cruel, wretched conditions. And when this place finally closed in 1997, advocates for the mentally ill, they celebrated. The citadel of misery finally forced to shutter its doors, freeing people to seek desperately needed care at responsibly run accredited mental health institutions. The only problem was responsible accredited institutions delivering mental health services to a marginal population at scale didn't really exist. And so a lot of these people had nowhere to go. Similar episodes happened all over the country, sending folk into a system unable to help them get well. And so today, Snap Judgment proudly presents Bates and Stokes. My name is Glenn Washington. Either send everyone away or tell them they can sit down next to you if and only if they don't make any noise. Because you're listening to Snap Judgment. Now, our story, our amazing story, gives a rare first-hand glimpse of mental health treatment in prison. Real folks talking in their own words about real experiences. As such, contains descriptions of difficult topics like violence, suicide, and racism. WBEZ investigative reporter Shannon Heffernan takes us into a maximum security prison about 90 miles south of Chicago. Snap Judgment. Demaria Bates is a licensed professional counselor, but she never thought about working in a prison until she saw a posting at Pontiac Correctional Center in Illinois. I was like, wow, I didn't even know they had these type of jobs there. So I applied, they called me, came in for the interview, loved me. I was kind of hired on the spot. So many people in prison have mental illness. And she thought the kind of therapy she studied could help. So, you know, just thinking, okay, who's a better fit? I knew it would be a struggle, but I'm like, hey, God is sending me here. I'm going to help these guys, and I'm going to really make, you know, a change in somebody's life. You know, giving them proper coping skills, trying to keep them from coming back into the system, because I figured most inmates probably had, could never talk to a therapist a day in their life. Do you remember your first day? Do you remember getting up and getting ready, what that day was like? I do. I was so excited because one, it was paying me $10,000 more than what I made in my last job. So that was a great thing. I got up. I'm like, I was nervous. I'm like, wow, I'm going into a prison. And I had got all the things that, like, you have to bring a bag that you can see through. You know, no phones, no this, no that. So I get up. It was like an hour drive from my house. So I drove there, um, came in. Of course, I got searched, you know, went through all of them. I'm like, okay, this is different. I'm not used to having to do this. Everyone was so nice, so nice, so pleasant. I met the warden that day. Even though everyone was nice, Bates noticed pretty quickly that she stood out as a Black person on the mental health staff. And which concerned me because the majority of the population is African-American. So I'm like, oh, okay then. And I'll never forget um, this young lady. She said, no one could last here longer than three months. I asked, I said, well, how long have you been? She was like, oh, I've been here for three years. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I come to learn down the line that that she meant someone of my skin color. She was paired with this guy, one of the seasoned mental health workers, to shadow him while he made his rounds, talk to patients, see how they were doing. 
he would make derogatory comments. You know, calling the guys assholes and shit turds and um, I'll fuck you up, like things of that nature. Like, And he's talking to guys who are on suicide watch. Wait, the mental health worker saying this? Yeah, yeah, like he would kind of laugh it off and the inmates would laugh it off. So I thought, oh, you know, maybe this is their relationship. But after the third day of going out with him, I was like, hey, I don't feel comfortable with you saying those type of things. And he's like, oh, you know, don't worry about that. These fuckers know what's going on, blah, blah, blah. And so I was telling him, like, but I feel offended, you know, by this. This coworker had been around a long time and everyone there seemed to know each other. Pontiac is a small town. This nurse dating that guard. So-and-so is so-and-so's mom. So she just left it alone. Didn't raise an issue. Bates went on with her job, built relationships with her patients and other staff. They made me feel comfortable. Like, you know, even when they had lunch, they invited me to lunch. Like, it was okay. Like, I felt, okay, I can do this. I I can work in the prison. Still, she was relieved when another counselor, Jimia Stokes, joined the mental health staff. And with her being African-American, I saw her with her dreadlocks. I said, oh, you're African-American, African-American. So you're really not going to stand for this. Jamia Stokes also felt relieved to see Bates on staff. Oh, well, I thought, oh, this is going to be really good because I know that she and I can connect in ways that maybe my other counterparts probably couldn't connect. The two women had pretty different dispositions. I mean, she's funny even when she doesn't know she's funny. Stokes loved how even with the strict dress code, Bates found a way to show her personality. She loves tennis shoes. She loves, like, to dress. That was her thing. And so she would always come in and be fashioning her shoes. She was just real light. In in a very heavy situation, she made it fun. As a matter of fact, when I started, she had taken off a few days. But when she came back, everybody was so excited to see her. It seemed like her infectiousness kind of was all over the room. And Bates loved how Stokes immediately felt like a trusty advisor, a good listener who always knew the right thing to do. Mia is what I call her. Um, She's a very wise woman. She was more the calm one, like, hey, let's kind of work through it. So she was like my therapist there, actually. Bates and Stokes started having lunch together, and they realized they were both from the same area, up by Chicago. It was a long drive, over an hour, and they started carpooling. Bates drove one week, Stokes the next. So Mia will have it on a gospel radio station, so we did a lot of that and the, the news. I can't remember, in my car, I may play some rap or some of the stuff that I like, but because we had conversations so much, like, the music was kind of faded out in the background, so. I don't speed, period. And and so, Bates, she likes to drive fast. Like, she was like, we got to get through this traffic. Like, you're going so slow. And so, she would get so annoyed with when it would be my time to drive because we were going to get there you know, real safe and calm versus she's going to go full throttle. So it's pretty much the same. Our driving is the same way as we kind of dealt with (laughs) situations. And by situations, Stokes mainly means the times guards or mental health staff said disparaging things about Black people. And I just noticed they would say things like, "Um, oh, yeah, the hood and their homeboys and, you know, just terms like that. And I'm like, hey, you know, why are you guys, you know, saying that? And so when I would advocate for them, they would say, oh, well, that must be your brother. That must be your friend. No, I don't know these guys. Once when they were driving in, they got caught by a train and they saw their co-worker, the guy Bates had shadowed early on, also driving into work. 
we saw him on his motorcycle and we were waiting at the train because if, if you get caught by this train, everybody's stuck at this train. When they all arrived at the prison and saw each other again, Bates teased this coworker a bit. I was joking, like, hey, you tried to act like that you didn't see me and Stokes pulled up on the side of you this morning. And he was like, shit, I, um, I started searching for my gun when you guys pulled up on the side of me. The young, who said, he said, oh shit, I forgot my gun. And I was like, wow, that's insult. I was like, why? Because we're black? He was like, um, no, I'm not saying that, but, and kind of, you know, just kind of shrugged it off. Yeah, and, and, we, and we reported it immediately, and nothing happened to him. I reached out to this coworker to ask him if he'd talk to me about accusations he'd made racist statements. But he declined and referred us to prison administrators. The Department of Corrections did not answer our questions about this incident. What struck Bates and Stokes about the whole thing was how little their superiors had reacted. They were also starting to notice that the situation for their patients was maybe even worse than they originally thought. Serious problems, like the issue with the cells. So the conditions of the cells were horrible. Again, you have mentally ill inmates, and so a lot of the practice of some of the inmates would be to cover their cells with feces so the doctors couldn't see inside of it. And it's also a way of them not having to be bothered with the officers. So that would happen often. Stokes says these filthy cells would not always get cleaned. So a guy would get moved out of his cell, and another guy would get put in it while it was still dirty. She remembers doing a cell-side mental health visit with someone who it was particularly rough on. He loved to clean, like to keep everything. His cell itself was clean. And so he was one of the ones that would adamantly every day, Miss Stokes, they still haven't moved me out of that cell. It's still nasty. I can't even walk around on it and I can't even clean it. He'd be, be, become very anxious and very agitated because he really liked to ha- keep a clean environment. And, and he would point out like there was like chunks of like feces that was on the floor. And I looked and I was like, oh, that is gross. If they didn't like an inmate, they would not give them their psych meds. And they would tell them, I haven't had my meds. They're lying, they're lying. Why would they lie and say you didn't give them their meds? I said, I'm looking at this man decompose every day. If you were giving him psych meds, he wouldn't be psychotic. But if they didn't like them, they would not give him their meds. And I've witnessed that. And I've said, I was walking behind you. You skipped him. Oh, 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 I didn't know. A lot of the officers, including the mental health staff, would say things like, oh, he's not schizophrenic or he's not bipolar or he's not major depressive. He just has a behavior problem. I said, but that's documented in his file that he's schizophrenic, that he's bipolar. So we need to treat him as such, regardless of whether or not you believe that he's feigning uh, symptoms or whatever. It's in his chart that a psychiatrist has diagnosed him with schizophrenia, bipolar or major depression, you know, or oppositional defiant. But they'd always say that it was because they're, they're just behavior issues. When I asked about this allegation, the Department of Corrections said they do not, quote, disregard the mental health diagnoses of the individuals in our custody, unquote. They said such allegations would be investigated and taken seriously. But Bates and Stokes said these kinds of things kept coming up. I thought that I was going to be actually being able to provide, like, therapy and and actually, like, work with people when they're in crisis and things like that. But that's not what you're doing. You're actually literally just going in And you actually don't have time to do anything but just ask these standard questions. Are you suicidal? Do you feel like hurting yourself? You know, can you guarantee your safety? That's pretty much it. 
But still, the reality was their presence made a big difference to their patients. Prepaid collect call from an incarcerated individual at the Champaign County Jail. This call is subject to recording. People like Terry Pettigrew. And Stokes was fucking awesome. She was really upbeat and positive. Pettigrew was at a county jail when we talked, so the phone line is a little fuzzy. He said most mental health staff weren't as helpful as Stokes. Like, for example, they'll tell you uh, do diaphragmic breathing or walking meditation where you count your steps inside of your own, and they'll leave it at that. Like, it's, it's that easy to simply grab a hold of a coping skill. And, for example, I brought to Miss Stokes' attention, I'm like, well, what about someone like me who starts to, you know, experience rapid thoughts where my mind gets to moving so fast that I can't, you know, grab a hold of a coping skill. And when I told her that, she asked me a question. She was like, well, when you get like that, generally what happens? I said, well, I get to the point where I start to have suicidal thoughts or thoughts of harming somebody else, and I asked for a crisis team. And she told me, she said, well, that's a form of a coping skill, asking for help when you need it. So just like Stokes advised, Pettigrew asked for help. He'd stopped getting letters from his mom, which sent him into an absolute spiral. He'd been stashing away pills. He said he told a guard he was feeling suicidal and requested a crisis team. Crisis teams are mental health staff who are supposed to respond quickly in an emergency when someone says they want to hurt themselves or others. The guard said he would right after he handed out the meal trays. But then when everyone had eaten and the guard came back to pick up the trays... He still hadn't gotten the crisis team. I said, you know what, man, fuck that. And I stepped to the back of my room and I started taking the pills. And now it's it, shit that got serious now. He said, hey, stop doing what you're doing. Hey, what are you doing? And then he left from the front of my cellar and practically broke his neck running off the gallery. Pettigrew said the officer came back with another guard who had a canister of OC spray, pepper spray. And he's screaming and hollering at me, telling me to cuff the fuck up now. And I told him, man, I'm not cuffing up, dude. I don't feel safe cuffing up for you. I'm not cuffing up until mental health comes. When I told him that, he pulled the mace can out and started shaking it. I'm like, what you got that for? And he sprayed. It was nothing to talk about. When he sprayed, he got the right side of my face, uh, my neck, my back. And I'm like, dude, what the fuck you spray me for? Spray me again. Guards took Pettigrew outside. That's where Stokes saw him. And I remember him just coughing and choking. And he looked like he took a shower in CO spray. It was like he was covered, dripping. It was dripping off of his head. Pettigrew wasn't the only incident. Patients told them they'd been beaten or that staff had tampered with their food trays. As this kind of thing was happening, Bates and Stokes were writing up official reports about what they saw or about what their patients had told them. I made sure that I not only did what was right to do, I also made sure that I knew I had a license that I wanted, that I worked really hard for, and I really want to keep my license, and I also want to, I want to have some integrity about my job. They said their bosses had told them to report what they saw, let us know what's happening so we can fix it. But then supervisors called a meeting, gathered everyone together, the whole mental health team. Stokes said a supervisor gave a really mixed message. 
you should keep reporting incidents with correctional officers. That's your ethical obligation. But at the same time, you want to be really cautious about like how often and what you're saying because these are the same people that we're asking to protect us when we go into these cell houses. So while the message was being communicated to us, I think everybody in the room knew, okay, well, I ain't write nobody up. They said that while the meeting was for the whole mental health team, everyone knew who they were really talking to. Because Bates and Stokes said they were basically the only ones speaking up. They start telling me that I'm um, over-identifying with these offenders. And I'm like, I'm not a male. I'm not in prison. Is it because I'm black? Oh, no, no, no. Race has nothing to do with anything. I'm like, well, how am I over-identifying with these offenders? I mean, I don't, I don't get it. When Snap Judgment returns, Bates and Stokes face a difficult choice. Speak up or stay silent. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Bates and Stokes episode. When last we left, Bates and Stokes, two licensed professional counselors, they had been warned about documenting abuse they witnessed at Pontiac Correctional Center. Now they must decide whether telling the truth is worth the consequences. Snap judgment. They kept reporting, despite the warnings. Some of the patients would tell them the rumors they heard. The guards were talking about following me home, and so they started telling me, stop taking up for us, Miss Bates. Stop advocating for us. They're going to come after you. And I would tell them, I want them to come after me. Were you scared for your safety? I mean, these these feelings of somebody telling you that, that they thought somebody might follow you home, were you, were you scared? To be honest, me personally coming from the south side of Chicago, no. I'm not worried at all if they're going to come to my part of town. Because they were all from downstate, so you guys don't know Chicago at all. So to be honest, I was not scared. (laughs) There were other things that let them know they had a reputation, too. Shortly after Stokes reported another guard, she was coming into work. And the woman who searched staff's bags before they came in stopped her. And she said, I want to see your bag. So I hold it up like this because that's what I normally do. So she said, no, I need to see it. Now, mind you, there's like four items in there. So you could actually, there was nothing that was obscuring the items or anything. She literally took each item out and turned it and inspected, took that item out, turned it and inspected. You know, and so again, I knew that they have this family system that they are very protective of one another. So if you do something to one, then you've done it to everyone. So that was her way of holding me up. Our time clock is across the yard, so you have to make it across there in time. And so she knew that. I could not find any Pontiac guards that worked with Bates and Stokes and would talk to me. But I did get my hands on emails from some fellow staff. And they say, very clearly, that they needed to search Bates and Stokes more thoroughly. In emails, they said they thought the two women might be sneaking in contraband. One guard wrote that she would, quote, personally handle the pat-down with pleasure. Stokes said sometimes staff also kept her waiting inside a cell house, delayed opening the doors for her to leave. That scared her. In one report to her superiors, she wrote that she was concerned that she was being placed in unsafe conditions as retaliation for writing a report. Bates and Stokes' morning drives together became kind of like strategy meetings, little huddles to plan for the day. 
where they'd each coach each other on how they were going to get by. When you're two African-American professional women working in a place where your leadership looks different from you, you kind of already know that going in. And so I would definitely be that person like to remind her of that. Like, yeah, you know what we're dealing with. <laughs> you know, this, let's be a united force and let's think about like what, what's happening here. Mia would always give me that pep talk, like, look, don't go in there, don't let them get under your skin on today, Damari. You gotta stay cool, you gotta stay calm. So I'm going in ready, like, they're gonna do something. I know that they're doing something. I just felt like it's something gonna happen every day. And then that spring, they were both in a staff meeting, a routine meeting where they all gathered around a big table. The two women were across from each other. I was dreading the meeting because it was always some BS. That day, the group was talking about a patient who Bates was worried about. From what I was hearing, I guess he just had a, a very bad stomach. and He had told them he swallowed a spork, but no one was believing him. Even though he said he swallowed a spork and looked in bad shape, Bates said he wasn't sent to the hospital. And staff members in the meeting didn't seem to take it seriously. I think they just started saying he's lying, you know, just like a... Okay, let's move on to to the next. It was nothing that was being addressed at all. He's just trying to go to medical and all of this. You know, they were just dismissing it. Like, I cannot believe this is their response versus going to get them to medical. Yeah, so I I felt like I had to report this. Like, I have to escalate this to somebody higher because this is a human who possibly can die, and this is their response. So Bates got up grabbed a form to write a formal report and started writing up everything right in front of everybody. You guys are licensed therapists and registered nurses here and psychi- you know, psychologists. How are you guys overlooking these red flags? You know, like, well, I'm going to report everyone here. Like, that's how I felt. <laughs> Bates told the staff members they should be worried about losing their licenses. Stokes said she remembers people being offended. The meeting ended not long after that. Stokes found Bates in a little side room. I'm just telling I'm like, Bates, you're, you're right. You're right. At that point, I'm just like letting her know that what she's saying is not unreasonable. All you can do is report it and you do your write-up and let that just be that, you know. The next day, a staff psychologist wrote a report complaining about Bates' behavior in the meeting. In the report, he wrote that he thought the comment about staff losing their licenses was, quote, very inappropriate and also threatening. The one coworker who allegedly made the comment about pulling out a gun also wrote a report. Just after that, Bates got a notice from her supervisors laying out concerns about her performance. It said, once again, that she was, quote, over-identifying with the offender population and that Bates had once said she felt safer in a cell with her patients than with staff, which Bates doesn't deny. The report also said that she'd encouraged her patients to go on a hunger strike. So I was off for two days, and when I came back, nine offenders were on hunger strike. They went on hunger strike because they knew that that would bring the state in, and then they would be finally heard. They thought they they are. I never even thought of that. After the complaints were filed and the notice was sent, Bates was placed on leave, and an investigation was opened. Bates said her supervisors invited her in for a meeting to respond, and she went through each accusation 
defending herself. After everything was done, you know, um, I, you know, told me, you know, I did want to cook my job, you know, but it's overwhelming for me. And so they said, we'll be, you know, we'll be in contact with you. So, so I never showed back up? I never showed back up. After a week of not hearing anything, um, I just went to the unemployment office. How did you react? Do you remember? I felt so alone. I really did. I, I really felt really alone because I felt really alone. Because I knew I was on the losing end. After Bates left, Stokes said the treatment from other staff just got worse. She said she got a nickname. Crude enough, I'm not going to repeat it here. I started feeling fearful that since they feel like I'm the enemy, that at one point... She worried that with the power the guards held, they might be able to talk an incarcerated person into assaulting her. And I shared that with my husband, and my husband was like, I don't feel... I don't feel comfortable with you going in there either because I thought the same thing. Plus, I would drive an hour and it's like an hour and 30 minute drive. And so it's desolate a lot, you know, like a lot of it's blank land. So, you know, he was thinking, you know, you don't know if somebody's going to follow you home one day, run you off the road, whatever. You don't know. We didn't find evidence that there were any plans to attack Stokes or have her attacked by an incarcerated man. But she was feeling afraid. Stokes started noticing something change in her. One day, one of her patients told her guards had beat him. Yeah, I saw the bruising. Yeah. And I told him that I would write it up. And I don't think I did. I don't think I did, though. Do you remember and I don't know what kept me from writing it up. I don't, I don't know why I didn't write it up. I don't know whether I just... I was really almost just ready to just get out of there, for real. And I just think I just probably... It's just a sea of a sea of of many. Did that that moment of seeing him in such a state and then not writing it up was that a turning point in any way for you? Did that affect you in any way? That specific incident? It probably was. I it, it probably was. It just makes me upset when you say that too because, like I said, it's just just not feeling like there was anything that I could do. And then, of course, I just felt like help, like almost like just so conflicted because, and that's, I think that's really why I really wanted to get up out of there because either you were going to go along or you were just going to get mistreated, or picked on, bullied. I was just tired of that. I was at work. Um... I don't remember if there was an incident just that happened other than just the buildup. I just decided to say, today's the day. I'm, I'm not coming back here no more. She walked around the prison and said goodbye to her patients. Ms. Stokes went to her desk and wrote an email to her supervisor and hit send and walked out the gates. felt free and I also felt kind of like I gave up on them too. If I really, if I'm really honest about it, you know, I had something nice to go to. 
but if I think about it, I could hear the sound of the prison itself. You know, you can oftentimes hear people on the yard. You can hear gates clanking. You can hear all of that. And it kind of almost felt like out of a movie almost, like a movie that happy but sad, like you wonder what happened in the end. Like, you know that the person is walking out and, oh, you're just so glad that they got out. But then you're also wondering about the people who are behind. Since leaving behind Pontiac Correctional Center in 2018, Jamia Stokes and Damaria Bates have stayed friends. Stokes now works as a therapist in private practice, and Bates is a manager at a healthcare company. The Illinois Department of Corrections did not answer a detailed list of questions we sent them about this story, but they did write a brief statement. It said the federal court recognized the department has made great strides in improving the quality of mental health care. But reporting done by WBEZ shows there are still people in prison with mental illness reporting physical abuse. That story came to us from WBEZ's new season of the Motive Podcast. This season, they're looking inside the Illinois Department of Corrections. There's a story about how tiny rural towns stage competitions with parades and chili cook-offs to win a prison for their very own and all the jobs and goodies that come with it. Another story examines how people with just a few years left on their sentence end up serving decades. Check out the Motive podcast from WBEZ. The original score for this story was by Q Shop and Renzo Gorio. It was produced by Jesse Dukes, Marie Mendoza, Joe Dassault, Nancy Lopez, John Facile, and Annie Nguyen. The reporter for this story was Shannon Hefferton. And Snappers, it is not over. Stay tuned. Snap. Okay, so today on Snap, we meet Brody Young. And Brody Young has one of those jobs for which only the truly tough should apply. He's a state park ranger at a place called Dead Horse Point deep in the canyonlands of southern Utah. And the thing is, when you're a ranger in those parts, it also means that you're the law enforcement. Now Brody, of course, he takes that part of the job seriously. But his real love, his first love, is the desert, the canyons, the rivers, the place. Please note, this piece does contain graphic elements. Snap judgment. You can see all the stars. It's just so clear and so dark. It's considered dark sky country. And when the sun rises and you go, uh, you know, on the cliff's edge, up at Dead Horse Point, you can see mountain ranges that are 100 at 150 miles away. It's just desolate and vast. And if you don't go out prepared, um, it's going to bite you. recovered a lot of bodies, um, whether they were on the river, you know, or got lost in those canyons and they just weren't prepared. So you're, you're, you're putting yourselves on a, on a, on a tightrope and it's easy to fall. 
in Desolation Canyon on the Green River, there's a few places you can go see uh, a skull, which is odd, isn't it? But someone dies in the desert, they're going to stay there for a long time before they're found. Some people uh, choose to go die alone in a beautiful place. That happens actually kind of frequently. And that's, that's something I have a hard time understanding. How can life get so bad that you want to end it? November 19th, 2010, I was on patrol. I was on a, uh, an extra shift. I'd worked that day, but there was some overtime money available. And it's a really warm, warm night. It's kind of the warm before the storm. Then I went down uh, this Colorado River corridor to these trailheads to see if anyone is still up onto the trails. And uh, the first trailhead I went to was Poison Spider Mesa Trailhead. So I found this lone car in the kind of back of the parking lot, and it was parked really awkward-like. I was worried someone would be out on the trail still that hadn't made it back. It was kind of late, and uh, late in the season, too. So I couldn't see a plate, and I kind of rolled up to it and turned on my overhead white lights and um, got out of my truck and walked around to the driver's side, and I see this lump in the back seat. And I think, oh, man, someone, someone's sleeping in there. And so I knock on the window, and, you know, I knock on it several times. And this gentleman wakes up, and he opens the door, and I tell him who I am and, and ask if he's okay. And then he said he was, and then we talked about where he could go camp because camping wasn't allowed in that parking lot. And he was in a sleeping bag. So I didn't get a good look at his face. His face today still doesn't mean much, but I needed to get some ID on him. And he doesn't have any or doesn't want to give me ID, so I asked him to wait there, and I walked back to my truck. And I looked back once, which is what you're supposed to do when you're on a traffic stop, but my night vision was blinded from the lights. And I couldn't hear anything but the noise of the truck. But just as I got to my truck door and just as I was about to get in, that's when the first shot rang out. It hit, hits me in my left arm. I'm left-handed. It shatters, and, man, I screamed out. And I turn, and I just see muzzle flash. And him advancing on me, firing one shot after the other. Three more rounds hit my back. Two of those rounds were stopped by the vest, but the third round broke through and went into my vertebrae. I fell to the ground at that point, and he is just standing right over me, hitting me with round after round. There was a lot of gravel bouncing around. Eventually, he stops. And then um, I had this moment. It's a terrible cliche, but it was either you lay down and die or you get up. And man, I wanted to live. So I got up. It startled him and he ran to the front of my truck and I ran to the back of mine. And in the meantime, I'm looking at my left hand and I'm telling it to grab the gun, but it won't grab the gun, it won't move. And I finally just said, to myself, you idiot, 
use your other hand. And that's when I began firing back at him through the windows of my truck. I was also counting uh, my rounds because I knew my reload was going to be with my arm dangling. Ah, non-traditional. So I released the mag and put the gun between my legs. And I used my bumper to to chamber around and I began shooting more. I fired um, in all about 24 rounds and then he raises his hands and I stop shooting. And he says, you got me. And then I began to go unconscious. I woke up a short time later. Um, I was laying on my back and I kind of raised my head and looked down my body to see my truck running. And um, I noticed his car was gone. And then I thought to myself laying there, no one knows I'm here. I didn't notify anyone that, that I was out checking on this car. I had been been shot nine times and I knew that the only way I was going to get help is if I got to that truck radio. But I did not feel right inside. Um, I felt very heavy, like someone had poured concrete on me. Uh, My right leg was numb. My left arm was numb. And it was really hard to move. And I slowly began just rolling onto my stomach, rolling onto my back, towards my truck... And this took some time. It felt like forever. And, you know, the exhaust is is on and it's pouring out. But eventually I reached the front door. And the front door was open. Joe, I've always made it a point to get out of my truck, leaving that door open. I've just always felt like I should. And I leaned up against it, reached for the radio and said, Price, 2-Alpha-6-9. I'm a poison spider mace at Trailhead. I've been shot. Please hurry. And uh, I didn't know what to do after that. All my training, I just didn't know what to do after that. When the ambulance arrived, it took me to the hospital in Moab. And from there, I was chopper to the hospital in Grand Junction where I underwent emergency surgery. But let me just tell you the damage. Uh, My heart was hit, small intestine, colon, right kidney, liver, diaphragm, left lung, spine, pelvis, left humerus, you know, left triceps muscle, right forearm, right femoral nerves, right hip flexor. And they told me that I shouldn't be alive. Say I died a couple of times during those first few days in surgery. But after I woke up, I eventually got to the point where I asked, where, where's the suspect? So I was told that after I was taken to the hospital, they found uh, the car that he had driven off in, and it was definitely off the beaten path. But they noticed that there was uh, a blood trail that wandered off down the river corridor. 
And they followed this blood trail uh, for like a mile to uh, a boulder field. And it looked like it had been setting up to ambush anyone who came over the hill because there was a backpack and a 22 rifle and, you know, food and sleeping gear. And uh, he didn't leave a blood trail from that point on. And so the trail went cold. But when they found his vehicle, they ran the license plate and found that it led them to a name of Lance Leroy Ariana. Was there anything in his backpack, in the car, that his family could tell you anything that would explain why he shot you multiple times in the middle of the night on a routine traffic stop? No, no explanation. Did he have any kind of criminal record? Yeah, it was very minor, nothing violent. So why would someone do this? What would lead them down this path to where shoot a cop and run out in the desert and disappear? Not sure why, but federal and state and local agencies began to search for Lance over an area the size of Los Angeles. There was a river search, sonar capability, a helicopter. Uh, then there were just a lot of tracking teams, you know, gun in hand and flashlight in the other, crawling through tamarisk bushes that were tall as cottonwood trees. Um, there were a lot of calls. Yeah, we've seen them. I mean, everyone wanted them found, right? And uh, wanted a reward. And a lot of those, well, all of them turned out to be bogus, but um, they checked on all of them. They even went down San Diego and searched to see if he was being very well hidden amongst this motorcycle club. I even thought I saw him uh, a couple of times in town. You know, dark curly hair and he was wearing a hat. Like at the grocery store, I would, you know, go back to that aisle just to walk past and to make sure. I don't know if he would recognize me. I didn't really get a good look at him if I would recognize him. But I had a couple of dreams, and both dreams were the same. We were at a party, and then I would see Lance come, you know, out of the corner of the room towards me. He would raise his hand, and he would shoot at me, and then I would shoot back, and he would die. And so one year after another would pass, and that was kind of torturous, not knowing what happened after, you know, he left me for dead and he drove off. Where did he go? I wanted an ending to it. And then Christmas Eve 2015... We're making uh, little vials of vanilla to give out to our friends. And we, I get a knock at the door, and it's my lieutenant. He says, come outside real quick, and his face is, is not right. So I go out and close the door in my front yard and snow on the ground, and he says, we found him. Two brothers had found the body in a cave half buried in mud and I just I broke down it was just 
I just couldn't believe it because I thought uh, he would never be found. And uh, I'll tell you, it's only 400 yards from where the backpack was. He went 400 yards and uh, crawled into this crack of a cave. So I got to see the evidence at the at the sheriff's office, and uh, boy, saw the saw the bones, and it was still in the sleeping bag, but they had it opened, and then um, it was kind of laid out: head, ribs, you know, arms, and it's really hard to determine how he passed away but I imagine he was he was probably scared because when you're hurt and you're out in the middle of nowhere and it's dark and it's getting colder and it's starting to snow you can't warm up you're cold your breathing is is getting worse Um, that's got to be the worst feeling in the world And it's probably why he crawled into that cave, was just to rest. And there was a letter amongst his stuff, and it was from his daughter. His daughter talked about, we're finally going to be able to spend this Thanksgiving together. And uh, she was really looking forward to it. But he didn't live beyond that night. He just laid down in that cave and didn't get back up. I didn't know him. I didn't even really get a good look at his face. But several times I'm told um, that I just, I I shouldn't be alive. So I don't know what death feels like, but I guess I know what it feels to get close to it. And uh, lying, lying on the ground before anyone showed up, I felt like I had help by me that night. It was really hard to, it's hard to describe, Joe. But um, all I can say is that uh, there was such a comfort, I don't know, arms wrapped around me that uh, the other side, maybe it's not going to be so bad. I don't know. What do, you, what do you think Lance felt? Do you think he experienced what you experienced? That's a hard question. Um, I, I hope so. I don't know. Maybe some maybe someday I'll get to ask the question, but it won't be in this life. Thanks to Ranger Brody Young for sharing his story with the Snap. After a long recovery, he's back to doing what he loves, working as a state park ranger in the deserts of southern Utah. But he's also taking the motivational speaking, helping other people figure out how to survive the unsurvivable. To learn more, we'll have links to his website on our website, snapjudgment.org. The original score for that story is by Leon Morimoto. It was produced by Joe Rosenberg. Oh, yes. You just walked a mile in someone else's shoes. How does it feel? 
you want to take more journeys, just follow Snap Judgment on any podcast platform for incredible stories from all over the world. And the best way to identify good people on the street is to check and see if they're wearing a Snap Judgment t-shirt. Get yours at snapjudgment.org. Snap is brought to you by the team that knows when to say when. Except for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich, we're not exactly sure what it is he's saying. There's Nancy Lopez, Pat Masini Miller, Anna Sussman, Renzo Gorio, Shayna Sheely, Taylor Decott, Flo Wiley, John Facile, Marissa Dodge, Regina Badiaco, Davey Kim, Bo Walsh, David Exime, and Annie Nguyen. And this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you too could fight the power with your best friend and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is PRX.